Okay, so why do I go to New York Comic Con every year? And why do I keep making videos about it for a channel that is ostensibly about cars? Well, aside from the fact that both Mr. Regular and myself do plenty of videos each year that have nothing to do with cars, New York Comic Con speaks to the sort of random weirdness, existential angst, and downright goofiness that has defined the non-car review portion of the content that makes up this channel. And I think that's a good thing, because there was a time where Mr. Regular and myself were so deeply, savagely uncomfortable with letting viewers into any aspect of who we are as people that it was almost inconceivable that either of us would make diary entries at all, much less make them public. Now, I know there are a lot of people who don't like the diary entries, and would rather know less about us, and that's certainly fair. I'd like to think we structure things in a way where, if you don't want to know anything about us, these types of videos are pretty easy to avoid altogether. But for those that do enjoy them, it means a lot to be able to just talk about things that are important to us, whether they have to do with cars or not. Now, with that out of the way, New York Comic Con 2017. I think the reason I go every year isn't just for all the people you can meet or all the cool shit you can buy, not that I have the money for any of that mess anyway, but because you get to be surrounded by crowds that are being themselves through the lens of somebody else. The thesis of New York Comic Con is that it's this place where a person can escape back into his or her youth without and this is the important part, being judged for it. It's that lack of pearl-clutching, nose-up-turned judgment that's key. More than just putting on a costume, cosplay is a form of self-expression that requires the person wearing the costume to inhabit the character they're portraying. It's not that far off from people who pour their sense of self-identity into the cars they drive, except judgment abounds because of expectations that correlate with the car you're driving. Corvette guy? Ooh, must be going through a midlife crisis. Oh, you drive a Miata? A WRX? But you don't look like you autocross, though. Oh, a Mustang? Oh man, how are you out already? I thought you had a couple more years on your manslaughter sentence. And yes, we're a part of that atmosphere too, but we'd like to think it's all in good fun. Nobody is actually declaring you're less of a person for driving a Geo. But what's great about car culture is that there are a ton of car shows you can go to, at both the local and the national level, that are truly accepting. For as much judgment that abounds in this community, there's just as much acceptance, if you know where to find it. But even while acceptance of nerd culture is at an all-time high, it's kind of hard to really let people in on the things you're into without fear of judgment. Guys are supposed to like cars. There's nothing weird about it. And girls who like cars are generally seen as these unicorns in the wild, as awesome as they are rare. No matter what gender you identify with, a love of cars isn't really something you need to explain to people in the same way you might if you love anime, or comic books, or video games, or pro wrestling, or any of the other things people might get on your case for loving. So it's kind of a relief that, for one week each year, you can pretty much dress however you like, geek out at whatever you see, meet some celebrities for $20 or less, and play AAA video game titles without anyone getting on your ass about how you need to grow up, or how you need to take life more seriously or why are you dressed like that, or what are you even doing here at your age? New York Comic Con is an oasis in the desert of adulthood, and that's why I go. So this year was a bit different in that there was generally less room due to Javits North Hall being under construction until 2021. It means the area generally reserved for Artist Alley, where all the comic book artists are placed, had to be moved to the opposite end of the Jacob Javits Center, an area that's smaller by orders of magnitude. So not only is the overall convention way more crowded, but if you wanted to go to Artist Alley, what you found was a shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder crunch of inexhaustible heat and waiting lines of questionable 
multiple beginnings and endings. Which is fine, I guess, because, I mean, what are they really going to do? I suppose they could have moved it to a different venue, since that's what they've already done with many of the panels and events, sending them a few blocks down to the Hammerstein Ballroom or to Madison Square Garden or something, but I don't know, they just didn't do that with Artist Alley. Now, back when I was an entertainment reporter, one of the big thrills of getting to go to New York Comic Con each year was the opportunity to interview celebrities for things. Granted, the celebrities I'd interview were for shows I didn't even really watch at the time, and they weren't necessarily a part of my regular beat either. But sometimes you'd get a Bruce Campbell or a Lucy Lawless or a Sam Raimi, and it was all good. It was one of those things that never stopped being surreal, in the sense that it wasn't as if you were given any sort of meaningful contact. You were sat at one of several round tables with other press. One seat would remain open, and the celebrities would rotate seats, going from table to table and answering questions for a couple of minutes before moving on. So you were basically a part of a gaggle of reporters with their phones or audio recorders out, waiting to find a break in between a reporter asking a question and the subject finishing their answer to sneak in your own question before someone else blurted out theirs. You had to time it just right so that you weren't cutting anyone off, like merging on a five-lane highway. Also, you can lob your softball question and hope you can parlay it into a more cutting follow-up. Then finding that the time has come and gone, and now it's time to start writing your story, reading and rereading and rewriting to make sure you didn't accidentally say something to offend somebody. Because we live in an era where everything pisses off somebody. I miss NWA World Championship Wrestling, and Ric Flair telling fat kids in the front row that he was going to bend their moms over for Micah Table in his penthouse suite if they didn't shut their cornholes, because we understood that he was playing a character, even if, for the most part, he really kinda wasn't. The thing about reporting is that I had interview panels to do, so I didn't get to spend as much time on the show floor as I would have liked, but that isn't an issue now, so I'm free to wander the grounds. This was the first year I went on all four days, and it was a stranger experience than I've known in previous years, in the sense that it was both exceptionally brief, but exhaustingly long as well. The show was only open from 10am to 7pm, which sounds pretty long, but when you consider the amount of foot traffic and just how hard it can be to really get around, including all the lines you have to wait in to get into panels, autographs, sessions, photo ops, and plain old vendor booths, you could end up spending over half of your day waiting to go into the Last Jedi experience, or the Tix danger boat, or that jigsaw escape room, or the video game kiosks where you could play the new Marvel vs. Capcom, the next Lego Marvel game, or the usual Square Enix offerings. This included some random driving video game named Gravel, which actually wasn't too bad. It's your basic off-road racer, and it handles pretty well, even if there isn't really any sort of hook that separates it from other games of its type. With the lines being what they were, it was one of the only games I actually got to play, other than the console version of Dissidia, the Final Fantasy fighting game that, for whatever reason, wouldn't load any of the times I tried to play it across the four days I was there. Granted, I'm not entirely convinced I was actually missing anything, but it was annoying to be stuck on a waiting screen that kept stating it was waiting for other players, even while other players had already chosen their characters. There was also the Life is Strange prequel, which I'm really hesitant to play because the first game is such a crystallized experience in my mind that I can't possibly see what a prequel would add to it. If anything, it feels like trying to create a history and background for what was already a perfectly vivid and well-defined world would only help to dull some of the mystique and nuance of that world as it existed in the first game. Besides, what are you really going to get out of playing the demo for a story-driven game on a convention floor, where you can't even get sucked into the experience because you're too busy being distracted by the smell of popcorn and relationship problems? 
It's the same reason I couldn't bring myself to bother with the PC edition of Final Fantasy XV, or the new Multiplayer Comrades expansion. I mean, good on them for adding more to the game, but it's still not addressing the central problem that the game, even a year on, isn't what I'd consider finished, much less complete. And I'm a bigger Final Fantasy fan than most people you'll ever meet, but I can't pretend that the presentation of the game wasn't a wall-to-wall -wall disaster of half-baked ideas, hiding a story that would have been among the most compelling in the recent history of the series had they ever actually bothered to tell it. But nope, we get a reverse Final Fantasy XIII, where the game is wide open at the start with no real sense of urgency whatsoever, before suddenly becoming a linear slog in its final half. I guess it was fine for what it was, but it could have been so much more, which is why it's so damn disappointing. But on to the cars. I don't know why, but Chevy more or less has New York Comic Con on lock, and this year was no different, as each Chevy vehicle on display was stamped with Justice League branding. There was the Batman Chevy Tahoe, the Wonder Woman Corvette, the Flash Chevy Bolt EV, and an unaffiliated Camaro that was pink for breast cancer awareness. Each year, I kind of find myself wondering how Chevy chooses which cars will represent what. I don't think it really matters which Chevy becomes the breast cancer representative, but for the others, I mean, okay, I can kind of get the Batman Tahoe. It's a great platform for all the people who grew up on the Tumblr Batmobile from the Nolan movies. A Batmobile with a bigger is better mentality that brings the idea idea of Batman closer to the id that characterizes pop culture obsessives. In much the same way working in a soup kitchen makes a devout person feel closer to God, the Chevy Tahoe grants an undersized nerd the kind of wish fulfillment typically reserved for watching Batman punch somebody's lights in on the big screen. Is it necessarily an accurate stereotype? Probably not. But if you're going to put a giant bat symbol on anything, a Tahoe is as good a choice as any, even if it's not ideal. I can kind of understand the Flash on the Bolt because there's a Bolt on the Flash, it's basic comic book synergy, and it makes all the sense in the world from a design standpoint, even if the end product doesn't really align with the thing it's supposed to be representing. You see, the thing about the EV is that, unlike the Flash, it's not terribly fast. What's fast about it is its fast charge capability, and even then, it's not nearly as quick charging as a Tesla, nor is it anywhere near as convenient considering you can't really park a bolt on the street and feed the charge cord out your apartment window. This kind of thing needs a garage, because it's not like there's a prevalent amount of charging stations in this country anyway. There's also the issue of the charging capacity of 80 kilowatts, which is less than the 150 kilowatts offered by Tesla. I mean, we did a Chevy Bolt, and it was a perfectly fine car. A no-frills, entry-level electric car that wouldn't give you a whole lot of hassle and wouldn't put you out on the street from sheer cost, but it's not exactly a flashy car either, which makes it perplexing as a pick for a convention like this. Then again, it's probably as simple as Chevy wanting to further build its electric car brand through a well-known DC property. And you know, that's a perfectly valid approach. Synergy is an obnoxious term, but it's also hard to pull off without embarrassing the thing you're trying to promote, in the sense that the interaction of brands tends to come across as tacky. Granted, you could easily make the argument that this is tacky as shit, but at the end of the day, tactful synergy belongs on a shelf, somewhere next to the lost virtue of seeding an argument. Because it feels like people no longer just let things go in real life, you know? Every argument has to go to the last breath until suddenly a friendship is ruined because the dude won't let go of his goddamn belief that Leia made out with Luke in A New Hope when you show him conclusive evidence that it happened in Empire Strikes Back. How is this something you even argue after watching the goddamn movie? As for the Corvette, well... 
I don't doubt that plenty of women drive Corvettes. I don't think I've ever seen it in real life with my own two eyes. Still, that's a purely anecdotal example, and it probably signifies that I need to get out more. But the design here seems pretty garish, even for a car that's plastered with a comic book character. It's like a car that you win in a box of booberry. It looks like a car made for teenagers by 20-somethings. But again, my New York Comic Con experience was one of those things that was quickly absorbed into a funk of wide-eyed wonder at the displays of creativity all around me. I realize now that one of the biggest reasons I go to New York Comic Con every year isn't the celebrities or the cool merchandise or the panels or the exclusives, it's the cosplay. The creativity, the talent, and commitment on display, it's really something else. Even in earlier years, when I was supposed to be going over notes before an interview roundtable, I couldn't stop myself from wanting to seek out the best cosplay I could find and ask for a picture. Of course, convention etiquette is kind of a strange thing in that you're asking a stranger if you can take their picture, and while most are happy to oblige, it gets to be a mess if it's a particularly well-crafted costume, because other people will hop in and snap pictures while the person is posing for yours. And then the person in the costume doesn't want to disappoint, so they stay in position while another batch of newcomers slide in to take a picture. And I find myself wondering how much of this convention these people actually get to experience in a given year. What with having to stop every few minutes to let someone grab a quick shot. And sure, they don't have to say yes to every person who asks, but then you deal with the people who say, well, then why did you dress that way? Like the convention has birthed its own mini rape culture or something. This getting stuck in one place shtick happened the worst to the more elaborate cosplayers. There was this one cosplayer who'd been in one of my favorite costumes last year, dressing as Winona Ryder's character in Stranger Things, with all the little Christmas lights hanging behind her on a poster board strapped to her back. This year, she was dressed as a Sailor Moon VHS box, and it was really one of the more inventive costumes of the convention because, as with all great cosplay, she invested so much in portraying the actual character. Her look, her expressions, the detail in the costume itself, everything about it was just great. But every time I saw her, it seemed she was getting caught in a photo op trap. For all I know, she loved putting smiles on so many faces, but part of me wondered if it wasn't all a bit exhausting for her. Either way, she's become a favorite cosplayer of mine over the past two years, at least among the ones I actually recognize, but there were a few others who stole the show for me. In particular, there was this guy there, or maybe it was a woman, it's not like I could actually tell, but they were dressed as the Jacob Javits Center itself. It was the strangest thing I'd seen since Mom faced Zap Brannigan in the 2016 election, and that dude got it worse than just about anyone I encountered at the con. I asked for a photo, snapped it, and then ran off to the elimination chamber to drop a brown Strowman, and when I came back over a half hour later, dude was still standing in the exact same position, frozen in place. Now, it's not beyond the realm of possibility that he would have moved at some point and then returned to that position, but it's really easy for me to imagine the dude finding himself stuck there for a while, if only because I saw it happen to so many people, including the guy dressed as an eight-foot-tall bumblebee from the Transformers movies. I have no idea how these people manage to lug around these giant, cumbersome costumes all day, but it's impressive craftsmanship nonetheless, and I absolutely understand why they make for such popular photo ops, since it's probably as close as we'll ever come in our lifetime to a real-life Transformer standing in front of us. It really is like something out of a movie, and it's cool to see the kind of excitement and enthusiasm that these sorts of costumes inspire, especially because it's not as though it's something you're going to encounter on Halloween a few weeks later. So I can't help but be impressed and end up totaling myself among the number of people gathered around, fecklessly snapping photos with jaws agape, because there's this prevalent feeling that it's simply what we're supposed to do, to snag these images for posterity, because who would believe us otherwise? 
But even then, there's a charmingly mundane quality to the spectacular here. It's visually arresting, but not to the extent that it's something you can't fathom. I mean, how many Pickle Ricks did I come across? How many Mr. Meeseeks? Hell, I even saw a real-life Morty for the first time. Literally just some teenager dressed like Morty, wandering the convention floor with his Rick. It's awesome, but not beyond the realm of the fathomable. If anything, I was more impressed by the giant Voltron or the giant movie Megazord that were wandering the show floor. Much like the Bumblebee cosplayer, these were the kinds of costumes that take a certain level of dedication and coordination beyond the average for an attendee at a show like this. In theory, cosplaying is an easy thing to do, but it's generally hard to do well at a serious level. I considered throwing on a costume for at least one of the days, but thought better of it. Like trusting in the pull-out method, it seemed like a good idea at the time, but common sense told me I'd just get hot and sweaty and I'd end up just embarrassing myself with some half-assed Bob Belcher costume when I didn't even have a Linda to tie the whole thing together. For me, just being here at all is enough. It's a weird circus of fandom for freaks, geeks, and mortal men alike. Maybe I'm just building it up more than I would ever need to, but it really does allow you to revert back to a time where maybe you didn't have as many worries as you do now, when you could go to the Ash vs. Evil Dead booth with its bleeding lockers and have a laugh at all the dick drawings, where you can meet the million-dollar man Ted DiBiase and hold the million-dollar belt and realize it's heavier than you thought it would be as a kid, where you can meet John DiMaggio for less than a to-go bowl at Chipotle while he chats you up and screws around with your camera, because of course that's what he does, where a blue screen background means you can morph in Zordon's command center, or go Super Saiyan and shout whatever the hell you want as the cartoon energy overtakes your body. Where you can run into any number of Georgies and Pennywises. Where you can bump into Pepsi Man or the Schick Hydro Man who's basically one giant disposable razor. Where there's a seemingly infinite number of Boba Fetts and Batmen. It's surreal, but again, it's not unfathomable. It's a cartoon transported to real life. Or maybe a comic book panel. Sure, you can make the argument that it's just a glorified flea market, but I don't really care. It's fun. Maybe I should demand a more substantive experience out of something I spend four days doing, but for me, fun is enough. It doesn't have to mean anything more than that. Of course, I think one of the other big reasons I enjoy New York Comic Con so much is New York City itself. Plenty of cities are alive, and plenty of cities swallow you in a welcoming sea of anonymity. But while I wouldn't want to live there, and despite the fact that I've spent entire weeks there at a time, I can't say that I'll ever really tire of Manhattan. Like a couple trying to spice up their marriage with some kind of weird UPS roleplay, this city is a place where you can essentially forget about who you are for a bit. I mean, I really like who I am, don't get me wrong, but I feel far more outgoing here than I do back at home, because there's a pervasive sense of impermanence to the entire experience. You don't have to conform to any sort of expectations, because these people have no expectations of you to begin with. Theoretically, there's nothing really stopping a person from doing this at home, but in a Seinfeldian sort of way, there are social cues you feel you have to obey, lest people think there's something wrong with you. Here, you're not walking on eggshells, worrying that you're going to offend somebody. Yes, you still observe the rules of common decency and respect, but the odds of someone taking something you say the wrong way don't seem nearly as high. Then again, maybe I just need to stop saying things that can be so easily taken the wrong way. Yeah, I don't know. Now, I'm not that big into the nightlife, but I found myself wandering the city before meeting up with my good buddy Mike for a late dinner. I'd been invited to this after-party for the TV show American Gods, and while I'd never been to any sort of industry party before, I had to admit I was intrigued, since it was theoretically only open to people with press passes. So I mosey on down there to the bar where the event is being held, only to find the line stretching farther than the theory that Snoke is Jar Jar Binks. 
It's unseasonably hot, I'm hungry, I'm tired, and I'm not even sure what's on the other side of all this waiting. So I just start walking in the opposite direction. I went into the first bar I could recognize as a bar, so I could take a leak. I didn't find out from my friend until later that peeing in the street had apparently been decriminalized in Manhattan, which actually explains a lot. While I was in the bar, I ordered some foreign beer I'd never heard of. The bartender was pretty cute, so when she noted that this was the first of that brand of beer that anyone had ever ordered from her, I asked her to have one with me. She saw my press badge and asked what I do, and I told her the truth about how I used to write for an entertainment website, and even got a pull quote on a Walking Dead DVD for reasons that continue to elude me, and how now I write for a YouTube channel. I mean, I probably overshared, but I got kind of enthusiastic once the beer got in me, it was weird. I wasn't drunk or buzzed or anything, but I was feeling pretty good and kind of rejuvenated after all that walking, so, you know, good mood and all that. Over the half hour or so I was there, I caught snatches of conversations, like a guy talking about George St. Pierre's comeback, and another lady talking about what she'd do if her boyfriend ever cheated on her with a side piece. I find myself empathizing with her hypothetical righteous outrage, but then I think, I mean, I've been the other man before without knowing it, and while I felt bad after finding out, I never truly felt like an asshole because these people were unhappy anyway. If it hadn't been me, it would have been somebody else. But that's how I thought in my early 20s. It was naive of me to think that you could just be with someone who was already emotionally attached to someone else as long as they were already looking for the door anyway. Because that's not really how emotional attachments work. These emotions are baggage on the airline of life, and most people have already paid the fee to check that extra bag. So it became a bit of a learning process as I got older. And hell, I probably still have a ways to go before I can consider myself even halfway enlightened about relationships, if that's a goal that's even attainable for me at this point. But then, when it comes to relationships and emotions and complicated entanglements, I think most of us are just learning on the job, making mistakes like people are prone to do. And our mistakes shouldn't be what ultimately characterize us, so long as we actually learn and grow from them. I mean, I'm not a great guy, but I don't think I'm a terrible guy either. I'm just a guy. It's like I told my nephew. We were walking past a Dick's Sporting Goods over the summer, and there was a basket of balls outside, unattended, and he asked curiously, well, why do they have these balls out here? A bad person could take one and no one would know until they were gone. And I say, well, it's the honor system. They're just trusting that people aren't going to do the bad thing, even if it's right in front of them. But he still felt that it was likelier that someone would swipe a ball than not swipe one. So I give him my perspective that ultimately, it's hard to be a good person, but it's really not that hard to not be a bad person. To which he responded that this little thesis of mine made no sense. So I explained that while it can be really difficult to be a truly good person, the type who always goes out of his way to do the right thing, to be there for the ones who need it, to help the less fortunate, and to hold true to certain moral virtues, even to your own detriment, it's really, really not that hard not to be a shitty person. It may take effort to go out of your way for others, but it costs you nothing at all to not steal from Dick's sporting goods. You may not necessarily be a good person, but that doesn't mean you have to be a bad person. And so he asked me, but if you're not a good person or a bad person, what are you? So I told him, basically, you're just a person. 
Now, I don't even know if it was necessarily a good lesson to teach, but I'd like to think that within us are multitudes, that people are irreducibly complex, and that that bartender has an entire inner world I couldn't possibly comprehend in the span of the half hour or so that I actually spent talking to her. We didn't talk much after that beyond pleasantries, and I had another beer and left, and walked back out into the New York night. I had dinner at a strange Korean place that served barbecue and played hot jazz, and had walls lined with vinyl. I slept next to my ex-boss's dog, and realize how much I miss sleeping next to a dog, even though her farts woke me up in the middle of the night. My brother and my nephew joined me for the last day of the convention. My brother was Negan from The Walking Dead, and my nephew was Keith from Voltron, while I kept on my regular costume as absolutely nobody. Seeing things through his eyes was pretty cool, considering this was the largest convention he'd ever been to. But by the fourth day, I was a bit burned out. Don't get me wrong, I still enjoyed myself, and I even got recognized by a fan passing by. But our energy seemed to escape us sooner than I expected it to. We ended up outside, eating food from a truck that served mac and cheese, and big plastic containers of Ecto Cooler with a straw sticking out the top. Then we began our trek back to the Port Authority to catch the bus home, to take naps and have strange, warped nightmares about the cosplayers and the iron labyrinth of the city, to come home and reacquaint with the awkward quietude of Eastern Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania, and its back roads, its bars that close at 2 a.m. or earlier, its thoroughly inconsistent weather, and its ebullient dog-walking seniors, excited about festivals based entirely around autumnal produce. And yet, while I love home, and always thrill in the return, I love New York. I love New York Comic Con, and I'm going to keep going for as long as it's within my power to go, and keep making videos about the experience for as long as viewers will tolerate it because I find joy in the opportunities I'm provided. And I think there's value in spreading joy, even if the best feeling that you can offer is something vicarious. Anyway, thanks for listening to this diary. Back to work on the next RCR stories. Have a good one, guys.